Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. For generations, Toronto police wouldn't hear it, though Black and Indigenous groups have long said it. The force has disproportionately targeted people of colour. And for this, as Chief of Police, and on behalf of the service, I am sorry, and I apologise unreservedly. We did not uh, put any uh, undue influence or pressure. It is extremely important to highlight that it is only, um, it is only the RCMP, it is only police uh, that determine what and when to release information. The commissioner's statement, the minister's statement, we're very clear on that. And yes, I still uh, very much have support, have uh, confidence in, in Commissioner Lucky. Today, the first female commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is under fire for pushing the force to be more communicative. We're going to talk about the clash between politics and policing and everything in between. And Parliament's finally out for the summer. What the F did they even achieve and what's next? Joining me this week, our very own Emily Nicola from Canalan, Le Devoir, and The Gazette, who's in the middle of a move, so thank you for making time. Thank you. Returning after a very long absence, Riley Yesno, writer and UFT PhD candidate. Welcome back. Hello. And last but certainly not least, Nick Taylor Vasey, reporter for Politico and our eyes and ears in the country's capital, and this week's token white dude. Thanks for your service. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Okay, let's get into it. So we need to talk about policing. Last week, the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, was accused of interfering in a mass shooting investigation in Nova Scotia for political purposes. This happened amid an ongoing inquiry into the RCMP response to the 2020 shooting in Portapique, Nova Scotia, where a gunman killed 22 people. This was one of the biggest mass shootings in Canadian history. The Mass Casualty Commission released documents which say Commissioner Lucky pressured the Mounties into releasing details about the guns the shooter used, allegedly saying the details could be used to help leverage Justin Trudeau's gun control agenda. According to reporting by the Halifax Examiner, this exchange was deeply tense and emotional. Both Lucky and Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair denied that she interfered in the investigation. But Lucky did express regret over how she conducted that meeting. The same inquiry has also raised broader concerns about the RCMP response the night of the murders. These revelations come as the RCMP says it is changing its core values for the first time in 25 years by orders from Commissioner Lucky. The new values include language like integrity, transparency, and accountability. 
But it's not just the Nova Scotia inquiry that's raising questions about the role of policing in Canada. Members of the Wet'suwet'en Nation are now suing the RCMP for treatment during their protest over the coastal gasoline pipeline. The Ottawa police chief stepped down after the Freedom Convoy. And a Toronto police report just confirmed higher use of force against racialized people. And then there's the whole debacle with the Emergency Act. We're two years out from major international protests and calls to defund the police following George Floyd's death in the United States, and we seem to be facing a crisis of confidence towards the police here in Canada. So, Emily, how do we make sense of this news about Brenda Lucky? Oh, my God, you just said so many things. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is why we're having this conversation. There's just so much policing happening, like policing drama happening. There is... I'm not sure, though, that there are moments in this country where where there isn't. There's just police drama that surfaces to the top of the news cycle, but it's always going on and there's always communities on the ground criticizing police, denouncing the kind of violence that they are subjected to. What's going on is that there's been some gain in awareness of the fundamental issues that are wrong with Canadian police, but with most police forces all, all around the world. And instead of really, truly transforming, what's happening is that police is adjusting its language, it's adjusting its discourse, and it's quote-unquote reforming, which is usually leads to different strategies that on the ground don't seem that different at all when it comes to violence, especially against Black and Indigenous people and other racialized folks in this country. What you're calling police drama I think is that back and forth with the vocabulary and the questions being asked and the journalists trying to figure out what's going on. And then there's going to be more press releases about how we're going to do things differently and diversify the forces and have more transparency and whatnot. To be honest, I do not. I, I, I Maybe I should premise my, my comments by saying that I do not believe that police reform is possible. When you understand the history of the institution, I just do not believe that's something that's doable. So for me, what we're saying is just the cycle of just people who believe it's possible, trying to push for change. The change doesn't happen. The violence still goes on. Communities sell that the violence goes on. And they're, they're like, oh, breaking news, violence still goes on. And, and that's the cycle. That's the cycle that's happening literally on the back, on the lives of Black and Indigenous people in North America since the founding of North America. I want to get into the details with you, but I just want to premise my comment by saying that I have very little patience left for this kind of conversation in general. I understand where you're coming from. And I think it's not just that violence is going on. It's just that each new day that passes, we learn the mistakes and failures of the policing institutions around us. It's been an avalanche and it's been growing over the last several years. And and Riley, you don't seem surprised either when, you know, we put all of this together and connect the dots. Yeah, yeah. Here, here, everything Emily just said. And I will also lay my cards out on the table to say, like, I am an abolitionist, firm believer in defunding the police. I don't think it's redeemable. I don't think it can be reformed. And it's so frustrating to hear about, you know, when you listed all of the all of the horrible things related to to policing that are going on. Because as Emily also said, it's like Black, Indigenous people of color who will eventually it'll come around to get the short end of the stick. Even this thing like, you know, with Brenda Lucky, and then in response, she's going to reform the the core principles. And when you look at it, it's like they're going to do a whole RCMP-wide investigation into how can we make these things 
operate aligned with the new core principles. And so more money is going to get poured in to see these consultations. And how are we going to do these reports? The police are just going to get more money out of this. This goes contrary to what uh, folks on the ground have been saying is actually needed, which is to take so many resources away from the police, don't get rewards for doing a poor job, um, for doing violence. The Emergencies Act, we know we talked about, like, um, there's a lot of conversation that I think is really necessary around like what sort of precedence does it set a, about like when can it be evoked again? Who does the government see as a threat? For many cases that has been indigenous land offenders that has been like, you know, black folks organizing on the streets. It was a really, I think, nuclear response to, yes, um, you know, a rise of, of fascism. But it also points to the way that I think that BIPOC are going to get the short end of the stick when it comes all the way around again. Why is the phrase police reform something Ottawa considers knowing that it's too difficult or too challenging? Like if there's anything we've learned from Brenda Lucky's situation so far, it's there is a blurring of the lines between politics and policing. They're kind of sort of feeding into each other and the problems that this institution has. So what's the role Parliament Hill should be playing or can be playing? Well, I mean, it sounds a lot like the conversation about reform in the Canadian Armed Forces these are problems that at a certain point don't seem fixable. I mean, there are places to start. There are conversations that don't have any kind of political consensus on Parliament Hill. It's just that's not a place where you go to talk about complex issues most of the time. One of the problems, in addition to the outcomes, which are the most important part that we face as, I think, journalists, but also just people who have an interest in the society around us, um, is we just learn in dribs and drabs what's going on. I mean, it it turns into an avalanche, which you've uh, which you've described. But you know, we hear about testimony out of Portapique, and we learn about notes from a police officer that reveal that the commissioner has apparently interfered in some way or tr tried to lay the groundwork for a political outcome in Ottawa that helped the prime minister's office and the emergency preparedness minister's legislation, or took orders from them. I mean, it's high. It's hard to know, but that's the thing is it's always hard to know. We just learn in dribs and drabs about the decisions that are actually made. We don't learn much, right? They refuse to talk about it in any detail. The Liberal government doesn't know how to communicate effectively enough or with any candor or with any sense that they're leveling with us. They just dig their own hole and then they jump deep, deep into it until it becomes all their opposition talks about. And then nothing else gets done. And we can't have more complex conversations that solve problems because they're too busy arguing about semantics on who said what and why and where and, and nobody's willing to be honest. Nick, a political one-on-one -on -one question. What is the relationship supposed to be like between our political bodies like the Ministry of Public Safety and law enforcement institutions? Well, I guess the relationship is meant to be that people who have political power can't direct the work of police. Police aren't supposed to influence the political process. I think the transparency issue I'm talking about really blurs how much of that sort of intermingling exists between police and the people in, in power who are supposed to oversee them. We're left to trust oversight bodies that are also not all that transparent. It's such a complex web of oversight and accountability that that most people check out because it's it's like fuck where do I start Emily where should we start I think we start by the basics and understand that at the core of the policing institution is the idea of legitimate violence so basically you have people that are paid by the states that are public employees paid by taxes and when they hit on ordinary citizens it's legitimate because it's state violence. And as a result of that, 
when there is violence by police against individuals in this country, the onus is on the individual to prove that that violence was wrong. And there's a whole bunch of things put in place to make sure that this very, very, very hard to prove. In Quebec, and it's a, like three years a job degree, right, to be a police officer. But it's spoken about as if it's the job that's the most mysterious in the world that nobody that isn't a police officer can possibly understand the complexity of the work of police, right? And that creates a culture where only other police is deemed legitimate to talk about police work. It, it creates a, basically a class solidarity that's very strong. Police unions in this country are incredibly strong as well. They will defend their members even when they've just killed someone. And even sometimes in some cases we've seen in Ottawa in the past, you know, passing on badges of solidarity with the person that's that's being accused of manslaughter, if they are actually being accused of anything at all. So that's the premise of it. You've seen it as well with the RCMP, with how it's just very difficult to get somebody that's not part of the RCMP to look at the police. You know, there's been some quote-unquote innovations that have been done in Ontario and Quebec where you have so-called independent investigation bodies that are there. But once again, the people that are chose, if I speak to the Quebec one, half of them are police and the other half are supposed to be civilian. But when you look at the people who are civilians, most of them have been working contract-based with police their entire life. And you won't get appointed there if you don't have, you know, police basically on your sleeve and that, that you very much are in love with the institution. So it creates a system where the, the system basically legitimizes itself all the time. And because there is this independency from the political system, it's like the mayor of a city is technically the boss of the police. But anytime a mayor trying to say something to the police, you will have the police union definitely, you know, kicking you down and making sure that you stay in your lane. And whenever you're trying to appoint as well a police chief from, quote unquote, the outside, who's trying to change things from the inside, that person also usually meets a lot of internal backlash. We've seen it actually uh, with Peter Soli of the Ottawa police was somebody who was appointed from Toronto, a black police officer, trying to be more sensitive a little bit. And so even if you're trying to change things from the inside, the inside makes it impossible for the person you appoint to, to, to do that job, often to do things differently. On the public side of things, when citizens try to ask questions in Toronto, you can do that. The police boards are kind of open to the public, but it's becoming more difficult to go there all the time. In a lot of other cities in the country, you don't even have that. And a lot of journalists are also dependent on what police officers say to them to be able to do their jobs when it comes to crime. And so they want to stay in the good books of, of police to be able to continue to have those exclusive interviews. So a lot of journalists are also in a position where it's very hard for them to be critical of police while also, you know, keep producing scoops and having that internal in information. So yeah, I've just said a lot, but those are just like... 25 different reasons out of a list of like 300 why it's so hard to get any kind of police accountability. And I really don't see how you could find a way to address all of those things. Yeah, it's almost like we can't imagine police to be different from what it is right now because it's been so codified in our society and all elements of our life. Exactly. I mean, to your point, Emily, it's not just that the police are using unnecessary violence. They're also failing to protect 
their communities, the ones that they're sort of mandated to serve, as we're learning through the Nova Scotia inquiry or the emergency powers inquiry, or even just the Toronto police report that just came out. And Riley, I want to focus on a specific example. You know, last month, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino issued a new mandate letter calling on the RCMP to end the force's use of tear gas, rubber bullets, and neck restraints. I thought that would have been obvious, but apparently it requires a mandate letter. So we mentioned earlier the changes to core values, but these are changes in procedure. So what effect will these changes have, if any, and are they a step in the right direction or are we still missing the mark with this kind of instruction? You can hear probably like the disdain in my voice the whole time (laughs) I talk about it. Like, sure, yes, not using tear gas and rubber bullets, I'm not going to ever say is a bad thing, is probably, you know, in, in the good pile of things. I just am so confused as to where for Canadians, where is the tipping point? How many reports, how many stats of like 200 times more likely to face this violence do you need before we do things beyond the bare minimum, which I feel like tear gas should be? When do we go and like follow the plans that people who have actually put forward like these plans on how we can look about totally dismantling and reimagining policing and community safety in general? When do we put a moratorium on giving uh, budget allocations or budget increases to these bodies, which each report just tells us only kills black and brown people. And I think Emily makes an excellent point, actually, about like the culture around policing within and outside the institutions. I hear the point about once we start doing these things, cutting their budgets, doing these things that it could face this like backlash. But I'm like, they're already killing us. And so what more backlash could it really be that we don't already expect? It's kind of like this only option is like we have to try it because clearly putting more into this doesn't work. I just think that there are actually like really visionary abolitionist plannings and conversations happening about community safety that are nowhere near the mainstream Canadian conversation at all. For example, in Indigenous communities, at least, one of the things that I was really upset about these last few years when I did um, a couple budget analyses was the like multi-millions of dollars that the federal government was putting into policing in Indigenous communities specifically. And the response that I had from people on the ground, like Toronto Indigenous Harm Reduction, who are the people who every single day work with houseless people without killing them, without doing all of these things. And they're saying, no, what we don't actually need is more money to the police for them to come into these spaces. We need more money so that we can take these people that we have relationships with, who trust us, who are willing to tell us what they need so they're out of these precarious situations where they're proximate to violence or proximate to arrest or criminal activity. Um, And then we can stop the need for policing altogether in in, in so many individual instances. This is right now one example of one group that operates with like almost zero budget. And if you gave even $1 million to that group, as opposed to, you know, the multi-millions for police, what transformative action we could see from people who are doing that sort of work in every pocket of Canada have been for decades and have these relationships. I just think that's such a worthwhile approach to even try that we, we really have not. Nick, the police are hurting people, not protecting people. They're failing to use their money wisely. The procedural changes and the internal changes that are needed to make them better are, are too slow or, or just platitudes. If it is time to reinvent and reimagine public safety, can Ottawa start that conversation, if at all? How many reports have we all read with recommendations made by panels? Man, oh man. 
I don't know if this is something that is fixed at the national level. What Riley was just talking about, like, it, it just feels like at the local level where there are real people, man, like the, you know, this stuff ends up in a drawer or maybe there's like an interim ministerial order that again, changes some kind of procedure, but doesn't attack the larger cultural problem. There was one recent report to the minister of defense, which was, it's like the tone was totally different than your typical report. Right. It was like there were indigenous people <laughs> who were part of this and drawing on indigenous wisdom to make recommendations to a federal government and to a military apparatus, to the defense team, as they call it. Kind of an inspiring report because it didn't read like any other set of recommendations anyone's ever formally been asked to give or given to any kind of federal government in Canada. But uh, I hate to sound like a pessimist, but there's a drawer that is made for those kinds of things. So, man, local level, right? Gotta trust the people. I mean, I'm with you, Emily. I don't want to have this conversation. I I hate this conversation, but I feel like if we're going to reinvent the concept and practice of policing or or just protection, not even policing, forget policing, the protect and serve concept in our society, if we're going to reimagine that, then we have to help people get there. Absolutely. And I don't mean to say I'm tired to have, you know, I'm actually passionate about this conversation, but I think there's a way that we can make people see like what we're what we're talking about for example like a lot of people are scared of the word like police abolition because they think it's just you're going to have this body and just like it's not going to exist anymore and like there's going to be like gun violence everywhere in the streets and that's what they see but for example like let's take something very concrete violence against women or women who are victims of sexual assaults right there's a lot of them who don't speak up because they have to go to the police and police makes them feel like crap and it's a patri- police itself is a patriarchal institution and so usually the the way the look at this issue is trying to train police better to be, better be able to to speak to women who who wants to speak up while there's also the issue of just you know not having women having to go through police to be able to to do this work anymore. So how do we look at not necessarily reforming police, but just like creating this whole new this whole new process for for women who are victim of violence and sexual assault to be able to go through the criminal justice system and speak to a professional that's not going to have a three year degree that, on which a lot of it is about actually handling weapons, but have like a better training that's actually meant to answer that person's need. And if we're talking about so many different issues that, you know, mental health units, a lot of uh, different local police services in the country are like, oh, that's right. Maybe sometimes we kill people in mental health crisis. We should stop doing that. We're going to have mental health crisis units. So instead of doing that, maybe you train people whose job it is to deal with mental health crisis to uh, be able to also answer uh, moments where there could be some physical interactions as well. I think that'd be much harder to do than to train somebody whose job is to look at, you know, physical interactions with people and then give them an understanding of mental health, right? So just doing it the other way around. Almost like make the role of police like useless, if not like the very, very last resort. Exactly. So you shrink it and you bring it back to the very small 
area of policing that has actually something to do with, you know, interacting with a person that has a gun or something. Like it's it's something that is a very small proportion of the actual work of a police officer. But whenever you think of, you know, shrinking the role of police, that's where people's brains go right away that if we shrink the, the, the budget, that's the part that's going to be cut. And that's also what police wants you to think as well, right? But but there's so many other things that we could we could do to basically limit the number of interactions that police have with people every day. There's so many things we could think uh, about that just makes it less likely to have those security forces to have to interact with everyday citizens all the time. And the more you limit those everyday interactions, the more you limit the risk of violence interactions that that end up being very traumatizing. So I think there is a role for Ottawa leadership in that. There's a role for provincial leadership in that. But it's not so much at looking at, oh my God, police, then it is to look at all the things that police are responsible to do right now and look at what are the things that could be so much better done by other folks and start, start maybe the conversation there by listening to the people who have been thinking about this for, for generations. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Riley? So my point of order is, are we yet having a conversation um, once again about Canada Day? You know, last year, following the news that came out of Tecumloops to Sowetmik, um, everybody, like, instead of popping off their fireworks and, and, you know, going and wearing their red and white, so many people put on their orange shirts instead. They went out to protests and rallies and all these things. And, like, I'm really curious about mm. this year. Um, if it'll happen again, I think it's really a test of how long Canadians' memory is. Is it something that they only care about when it's in the top of the news cycle, when, you know, you can really politically posture around it as like this great thing? Or is it like this real thing of solidarity that takes, you know, commitment over years, over time, repeatedly, um, what real, you know, allyship, if you want to use that word, looks like? And I don't know, I haven't seen many people pontificating over that and I would like to (laughs) not a point of order but I don't know what's gonna happen on Canada Day I'm curious too but I've already seen a lot of posters for fireworks so it's probably not a good sign that our memories are solid so sorry (laughs) Madam Speaker I have a point of order what is your point of order Nick uh my point of order is it's kind of Canada Day related (laughs) kind of conservative party related kind of leadership related (laughs) And I, I guess my point of order is uh, uh, this summer is a time when uh, there are six conservative leadership candidates who are all talking about the art of persuasion. You know, they've signed up all their members. Now they want to try to steal some support from other candidates. And then it culminates in September 10th. And then there's a new leader. And between now and then, there's just so much happening. Uh, there is a new convoy that is arriving for Canada Day in Ottawa, maybe in other places. 
And there are conservative MPs who support that convoy. That convoy, some of its leaders say things like the prime minister stole the election. And a security bulletin put out in June said that the likelihood of a storming of parliament was low or unlikely, which is heartening. But the conservative party has a summer of, of, of thinking to do, I think. I mean, clearly, this is a party that from now until eternity is going to be divided and it's always going to have people who support things like the convoy that thinks that Justin Trudeau stole the election. But I think Canada is in a worse place uh, if it's just the Liberal Party romping to victory in every election. And it just this summer seems to be setting the stage for that for a period of time. Not a point of order, but oh my god, you guys are ruining the summer vibes. And by you guys, I mean the Conservative Party. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Emily? We didn't speak to each other beforehand, but it always ends up we have Canada Day-related point of order. I really love it. Mine is going to be that, well, obviously you said already I'm I'm preparing to move. But um, Quebec's always been kind of ahead of the curve. So we're, we're already not doing Canada Day since as long as I remember. I've never celebrated Canada Day in my life, actually. Um, it's National Moving Day. And in the midst of everything that's been going on, I would like to have that renamed as National Housing Crisis Day. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's going to be a lot of people, you know, in the streets who haven't been able to find a lease in time. In Montreal, just at the beginning of July, that's going to be the, the top news most probably. And that's an issue across the country. So maybe, yeah, like think about decolonizing and also think about the housing crisis as something that maybe we could do instead of celebrating Canada Day this year. Not a point of order, but you know what? There's going to be like someone in Parliament Hill that listens to the backbench that will hear Emily's point of order and be like, that's a great idea. Instead of solving the housing crisis, let's declare a national day of housing crisis. Unanimous consent. Okay, so we've hit the halfway mark for 2022, and things have been crazy for the past six months. Inflation is at 7.7%, its highest point since 1983. Food and gas prices are skyrocketing. There's a housing crisis, which we just talked about, a war in Ukraine. Not to mention, we're still facing the repercussions of the pandemic on all levels. But Parliament just rose for the summer, virtually. A total of nine bills were passed during the 44th Parliament's first session. So let's take a look back at the past year to see exactly where we stand in terms of political accomplishment and where we are headed for the last six months of the year, just in case we might solve some of our problems. (laughs) So I wanted to ask each of you to tell me one thing that the government has successfully accomplished in the past six months, and one thing you think they did poorly and could have done better. And we will start with our eyes and ears in Ottawa. So there's a lot of unpleasantness in Ottawa, uh, which I'm going to talk about shortly. But the government was able to uh, produce one of those rare moments. And it's so rare that it makes headlines because everybody gets along and it's warm and fuzzy. But they were able to kind of in record time propose a bill that responded to a Supreme Court decision that said that you can't be held criminally liable for something you did, a violent act, if you were, you know, under the the influence in an extreme fashion. The government said that doesn't make any sense. That should not be a defense and put a bill before the House of Commons that 
the table on June 17th and then on June 22nd, uh, it sailed through to the Senate. So five weeks from the from the Supreme Court ruling to to getting in front of the the other chamber. And it, it's one of those times when you realize everybody can be on the same page in the House of Commons uh, when there's a serious issue and and when there's truly no reason to politicize or, or make make it partisan. Uh, so that was one of those moments. There, there was a couple of those before Christmas, and there was one right at the end of silly season in Ottawa. Should I talk about the bad thing now? Yeah, tell us the bad thing too. Yeah, so the bad thing is that um, against that exception, the rule is still that the government and this has always been the case, will say the opposition is being obstructionist. And the opposition will always say, whether they're liberal or conservative, that the government is ramming everything through parliament and they're being undemocratic and, you know, the sky's falling. And there's probably an element of truth to both of those points of view. I'll add that to the list of things that bother me about Canadian politics and how they're failing us. And I do want to talk about the opposition. But first, Emily and Riley, one thing that they did good and one thing that they did bad in the past six months? One thing that they did good, and I wouldn't have said that, I think necessarily at first when it happened, I was skeptical. But in hindsight, I think the liberal NDP deal is not the worst thing in the world. I just think that if we're going to have some sort of electoral reform eventually in this country, people need to get used to different political parties like functioning uh, together we need more of that if we're going to eventually evolve to a system where there's more different political parties and a better ability to reflect the different views that exist within Canada, within our political system. It's like a baby step in the direction of normalizing coalition-style politics. It's not a coalition, it's not a coalition, it's not a coalition, but it's a baby step in making sure that like collaborative politics are something that is not completely unusual. Mm-hmm. So I think that political experiment is, is worth uh, trying, and kudos for whoever you know made that work. In terms of what really isn't working, I'd say just basic state services to citizens <laughs> is, isn't working. Uh, I mean, there's people camping out still uh, in front of the passports office in Montreal, but like all over the country, trying to get a passport to get out of this country is is messed up. But even before that, you had long lines for people trying to get employment insurance. There's so many people who are still not able to get their permanent residency. There's such a backlog for people with immigration demands. There's still a lot of Ukrainian families are not able to get in the country and have the papers sorted out in time, let alone people coming from like so many different countries as well. So that like part of like just basic service to citizens, obviously I think it took a hit before because of the pandemic, but also there was just a lack. It seems like work organization within the public service is making it so that it's just really, really hard for whatever the federal government actually does for people to actually get done. And I think the parliamentary session ended on a really bad note because it's getting very real when you have like journalists interviewing people in huge lineups of like people in despair in the streets in front of government office. It's not something that I thought that I would see this year when, when we started the year, but here we are. If government can't process paperwork, honestly, what are they good for? Like, that's their one job. <laughs> Thank you for summarizing my, my point so well. <laughs> Riley, one good thing, one bad thing. I'm a bit biased because I had a hand in this file, but I was really pleased to see that the LGBTQ action plan 
was put out and passed that we banned conversion therapy back yeah. in January. Yes. I forgot about that. And it was one of those things that I think people were even really surprised about because we're like, we have gay marriage. Everything's great for the gays in Canada. Um, and it's like, no, hate crimes against gay people have only been going up. Um, it's really necessary legislation, um, really long delayed. And so that was excellent. There's a couple things I could be policy nitpicky about, but I think overall it was like one like glimmer of light on my newsfeed in, in amidst the chaos. The bad thing I will say is as we talk about, you know, inflation and soaring costs and everything, the government peeling back CERB from people is making me so infuriated um, I think Vicky Mochama, the uh, journalist, did a tweet and I was like, oh, this is perfect. They're like, this is really loan shark behavior of, mm. the, of the government. And I was like, yes, it definitely gives that vibe. So I love that as recession feels to be looming, that we're like in a really tough economic spot that the government in response to this, we will peel back emergency checks from people. If anyone's curious, my good thing is I think childcare was great. I think childcare was fantastic and we should keep talking about it. I think that's so cool and I hope it works. My bad thing is everything they did on the climate file, including the Bay du Nord investment. Oh, we forget about the Bay du Nord thing. <laughs> um, literally, like for a country that apparently considers itself a climate champion, we have really, really taken some major steps backwards in the past six mm -hmm. months. And I don't understand how they can justify that. And I look mm -hmm. forward to hearing them explain. But but very quickly, you know, Nick said at the top of this convo, this is going to be a difficult summer for the Conservative Party specifically, but also for the Liberals who are facing a lot of anger and rage for various different things. And we're seeing anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists head to Ottawa a lot and insert themselves in Canadian politics. As we look ahead, is Canadian politics braced for the tensions? And, and is there a way they can navigate this? Like, how do we prepare the people for what's about to happen? Because it looks really bad. I don't think it's prepared, to answer your first question, because it's so, so bad at having anything really proactive as opposed to reactive to do with, like, a rise of alt-right radicalization, which as I think, like, especially, you know, a couple conservative candidates really are very successfully tapping into and people who are on the fringes of that. And I think that they have like no really effective response at dealing with that. And this is like something that should have been in place, like thinking about how can we deal with this like rising right a long time ago. And it just seems like nothing has been in place. So I feel like there was an option at one point, but I don't know if it's coming in time for an election or after this summer, which is quite dreary. Like my sense, and, and I'm not even in Ottawa, Nick, but my sense is going to get really, really bad. And a lot of it is because the opposition leaders haven't really played their democratic function really well. Like if you watch Question Period or if you just watch their responses to policies, it's a lot of like attacks and conspiracy theory based attacks as opposed to like legitimate accountability questions to learn more and hold the government's feet to fire, which is what I thought opposition members should do and but apparently can't do. I think that Canada's political leaders in Ottawa, each individually, and I guess collectively then are in this strange spot because uh, you have Jagmeet Singh, who for sure is still an opposition leader. And I, I think the NDP is not in bed with the liberals to the degree that conservatives claim. Uh, they are still adversarial. It doesn't come out in the votes um, because they are siding with the Liberals a lot, but it does come out a committee where NDP MPs are holding Liberals to the fire, ministers' feet to the fire. Like Matthew Green at the Emergencies Act Parliamentary Committee, he's like no holds barred. 
Mm. Um, not just solid questions, but probing questions that produces tension. And conservatives said that that deal would would eliminate tension between those two parties, and it hasn't. Having said that, when you are voting with the government and you're standing up with the government every every day, especially to end debate on on government priorities, it's hard for you to distinguish yourself as somebody who opposes that government and offers alternative solutions, even though you have a deal that has some of those solutions in the pipeline, like dental care and pharmacare and all that stuff. He's in a tough spot. Candace Bergen is the interim leader. She's not really being a party leader. I mean, she's being a parliamentary leader, but I think her challenge is, is not overshadowing all the candidates for the actual permanent party leadership. And then you have Justin Trudeau and the liberal party and I'm not sure anybody really understands who is in charge. Like, of course, Justin Trudeau is in charge. Of course, the PMO runs everything, like obviously. But clearly there is, especially around vaccine mandates, there is some some sort of rumbling in the liberal caucus. And people are thinking about what comes next, even if it's not imminent. So among most regular people, are they thinking of Justin Trudeau as the prime minister for now and then for the foreseeable future? Or are they thinking of him as the prime minister now? But I don't know. I'm hearing about this woman, Christy Freeland, and this uh, shadowy central banker named Mark Carney and whoever else is sort of in the occasional Global Mail headline about the next party leaders. I, I don't know if they're really controlling or commanding the conversation anymore. Christy Freeland made a big speech about affordability that nobody's talking about a week later because she didn't really say anything new uh, or novel that I think met people where they are. So the challenge they all individually have and I think collectively face is that <laughs> there aren't a lot of obvious leaders in Ottawa right now. All right, on that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. We're going bi-weekly for the summer to take some time off, so check back again here in two weeks for a new episode. In the meantime, keep sending us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email me, Fatma, at canadaland.com. The show is also on Twitter, at BackbenchCast. I'm also on Twitter, at Fatma B. Sayed. Emily, after you move, where can people find you? Same place. (laughs) (laughs) Which is on Twitter. (laughs) Twitter. um, Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette website. And as well on Detour which is going to have its third episode launch in sometime in July. Uh, Riley, where can people follow your work? You can follow my work on Twitter at Riley Yes No Maybe. Um, I also have a website that has some of my writing posted. And I'm actually also um, starting my own podcast um, produced by the University of Toronto and the Indigenous Politics Collaboratory, talking about Indigenous youth and Indigenous politics um, in Canada and globally. So I would love if folks would check that out. It's called Red Surgeons. That's awesome. Can't wait to listen. And Nick, thank you for being our token white male for the day. Uh, Where can people follow your work? They can go to politico.com slash Ottawa Playbook and sign up. Really, it is the best newsletter about Canadian politics. You want to read this thing every day. This episode was produced by Noor Azrie and Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacayone. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudthorn. The music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.